Thank you. I was thinking as we were singing, Oh, come let us adore him. What that really means. I'm a little hot right here. I was thinking about what that means for us today since Jesus is no longer a baby. We adore adorable things, right? And what's more adorable than a baby? Seemingly, what's less offensive than a baby? The most offensive thing that ever happened to mankind was that God became a man. Because in the incarnation, God declared to all men, the righteousness I require, you can't do. In your flesh and your blood, you cannot achieve the righteousness I require. You can only achieve the righteousness I require by faith in a baby in a manger. Because in that manger lies both God and man, truly God and truly man. And in that person, all our faith must be cast for salvation. You would think that a baby is pretty non-offensive. But the baby Jesus should offend you this morning. You should be offended. And you should also see that the baby Jesus is your greatest hope. Because we put not our trust in the flesh, but our trust is in him. How do we adore him today? Jesus said, if you love me, what do you do? You keep my commands. If we adore him, we keep his commands. We're going to sing, oh come let us adore him till we are sick at our stomachs over the next several days. And you're going to hear it in the malls. As we run into the malls to buy things, we will be singing rather empty the words, let us adore him. And Jesus said, if you adore me, just, just obey me. It's very apropos that we talk about the meaning of our words today since that is the focus of our passage. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Matthew 5, 33 through 37. We're continuing our story, our sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and this is our current sermon study. The passage is again Matthew 5, 33 through 37. The purpose of this Sermon on the Mount is not to be a great moral treatise of how to be a good person, but rather an expectation of what kingdom people, namely Christians, are to look like, are to act like, are to be like. Before we even begin our list of anger and lust and divorce and today oaths and further on retaliation and love of enemies, Jesus declared to his disciples that they are to be salt and light. Salt is to stave off corruption. Christian, you are to confront the world with the truth of Jesus Christ. 
but you are to be a guide to them into greater righteousness as the light of the world. Jesus said before he began the sermon that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. The scribes and the Pharisees were the most righteous of people in those days. They were, better yet, let's not use the word righteous, let's use the word, they were the most religious. We use that word a lot. If a person is holy, or we believe a good person, we say they're very religious. Because to us, on the outside, we see the fruit and we look at their life and we say, they seem to obey it. But Jesus says, for the believer, you trust that I inspect your heart. And if your heart is right, then what's on the outside will be right too. If your heart really loves Jesus, if your heart really seeks to adore the, the man Jesus in your private moments, in your, just in the, that, that moment with you and God where only God can read your thoughts, you say and you act on faith and say, I trust that you've made me new in your image. I will obey you. No one can see us hate our brother. We can see the fruit of hating our brother sometimes no one can see us lust we can sometimes see the fruit of that lust but Jesus says unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and Pharisees and your righteousness is a heart righteousness and not merely a, a righteousness of your mouth where you just talk about it but that you obey me in your heart Yours is the kingdom of heaven. You are saved. This was a surprisingly, surprisingly difficult passage for me this week. When I began my study on oaths, I thought to myself, what am I going to talk about? Seems that the moral of the story is, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And I was confronted greatly by the Holy Spirit and convicted greatly about the use of my words. Look with me, if you would, at, passage, at the passage this morning, verse 33. Read along silently as I read aloud. Jesus is going to switch focus. This is why he uses the word again to talk about something slightly different, but another practice nonetheless of the Pharisees. And he says again, you have heard that it was said to those of old... Those of old are the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath either at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. 
even if you use just for men. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray. Lord, help me to explain this text. Help me to apply this text. Help us as a collective body, including this pastor, obey this text. Amen. I want to do several things this morning. I want to take a moment and I want to look at our text. So don't fold up your Bible just yet. I want to take... I want to take a moment to explain. That's what we first want to do in every passage, to explain what the text means. I want to second address some theological questions we might have. And then third, I want to ask the question, what does this text mean for us? A lot of times we ask the wrong question. We say, what does a text mean to us? But that's the wrong question. If you go to the doctor and he gives you a prescription for medicine and it says take five mls you do not ponder what does that mean to you it means what does that mean for me because should you take too much or not enough you run the risk of it being ineffective or being so effective that it kills you the question is what does the text mean for me and whether we like the end result or not is really neither here nor there. Just like when we go to the doctor, whether we like the medicine he gives us is really neither here nor there. So let's look at our text. In this passage this morning, Jesus does two major things. The first thing he does is he prohibits lying. And the second thing he does is prescribes straightforward honesty. Simple enough. It is a prohibition of lying and a prescription of straightforward honesty. Simple honesty. And his opportunity, his response for this topic is the casuistic practice of oath-taking by the Pharisees. The word casuistic means cleverly entering into an oath that one has devised to be easily broken. So the Pharisees have made oaths that they don't intend on keeping. You say, those Pharisees are such rascals. I would never do such a thing. But this was what they were doing. The goal of the passage or the goal of these, these oaths was to deceive another person for the benefit of themselves. They would swear an oath that they didn't intend on keeping, and they would swear it by a lesser thing than God. And the Pharisees demonstrate that they know exactly what God requires in oath-taking, even though they're going to practice a very despicable practice of lying, saying they plan on keeping an oath. What is an oath? It is swearing to uphold something. A vow is swearing to do something. So we're going to use the words oath and vow this morning kind of interchangeably, but the point is this. We are swearing that we will do something and we intend on keeping it. And the Pharisees were very laxed in this practice. But they knew exactly what God's word taught. Jesus says to them, you have heard that it was said of those of old. In other words, you know what the Bible teaches on oaths. And they did. 
And the Pharisees stand condemned that they know what the Old Testament taught about oaths. Because they know the Old Testament's teaching on oath-taking so much that they try to circumvent it by using a very crafty way of taking their oaths. But the Bible taught in the Old Testament that you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, Jesus is not quoting a direct passage, but giving a summation, a summary of what the Old Testament teaches on oath-taking. Let me just read several texts to you from the Old Testament about taking oaths. The first text is Leviticus 19.12. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Numbers 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. In Exodus 20, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That means to empty God's name of its power. When we say, oh my God, rather flippantly, we are emptying the name of its power. But that's not exactly what, you say, why would God be so petty in this, in this commandment to just say, don't say my name empty? That's not what he's driving for here. He is saying, do not evoke my name in an oath, do not evoke my name at all, unless you take seriously what you're about to do and say with my name. Unless you mean it. Don't empty my name of its power. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 5. This is the major one. This was the one my father used to t say to me all the time. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Listen to the teaching. It's better that you just keep your mouth shut than that you open your mouth for an oath and you don't keep it. The Bible nowhere in the Old Testament or in the New requires believers to take oaths. We don't have to do it. And from our passage this morning, it appears Jesus doesn't want us to be running around taking oaths. But when we do, keep it. He's not arguing this morning that there's something wrong with the Old Testament's teaching on oaths, but he's condemning the pharisaical practice of casuistic oath-taking. Look at verses 34 through 36. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. We have to be careful here that we don't assume that that is a period when it's a comma and there needs to be further explanation of what type of oath Jesus is talking about. Do not take an, uh, an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, 
or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. In other words, the type of oath that Jesus is condemning is an empty oath that the Jews were taking. An oath upon something less than God's name with the intent of wiggling out later on in the agreement. But Jesus, rather, in this passage, upholds the Old Testament teaching that all oaths and vows are ultimately to God. So the Jews would swear an oath and they would swear that oath by the earth. I will keep my word uh, on the earth or I swear it by Jerusalem or by heaven. It's very similar to what we do today when we say something like, I swear on my mother's grave. What an empty thing. What is your mother's grave? Your mother's grave is completely impotent to hold me accountable or hold you accountable for that oath you just made. Because graves are for what? Dead people. And the earth is dead. And Jerusalem is dead. It's not a person, in other words. And even heaven, as glorious as it is, is impersonal and dead. But God, He's alive. And He will hold you accountable for the oaths that you make. So Jesus doesn't say, don't take oaths, but when you do them, don't take them like these. Don't be sneaky with your oath-taking. But let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Jesus gives an example of people taking oaths and, and how evil these can be. And in Matthew 23, 16 for, through 22, he says to the Pharisees, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? Jesus isn't here saying, now swear by the temple, but he's saying this is such a stupid debate because what you're doing is you're creating a hierarchy of authorities that really mean nothing, and even in your hierarchy of authorities, you get it wrong. What's more sacred, the temple or the gold that makes, or the, excuse me, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? He says in the next message, what's more, you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? And he's quoting directly from Exodus 29, 37. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, that is, make it holy. And the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. 
And he says, listen, even in this, even in this hierarchy of impotent arbitrators of justice for your oaths, you don't even get it right there. You're so twisted, you're so wicked, that you don't even understand the holiness of the temple. You don't even understand the holiness of God. Jesus simply says this, let what you say then simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The citizens of the kingdom of God, i.e. Christians, are to be people who are committed to honesty and who say what they mean to say and mean what they say. Christians are then to be trustworthy. Paul tells us that one of the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. While the old man was, amongst other things, a swindler, the new man is a man characterized by faithfulness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 11, you used to be a lot of things. Before you came to Jesus, you, you used to be sexually immoral. You used to be an idolater. You used to be an adulterer. You used to be men or women, I'm going to add that, who practice homosexuality. You used to be thieves, you used to be greedy, you used to be drunkards, you used to be revilers, and you used to be swindlers, you used to be deceivers or liars or untrustworthy or dishonest. You used to be that way. And Jesus is saying, if you've come to me and you're following my Sermon on the Mount, you're salt and light, and you've got this, this Holy Spirit living in you, you used to be one way, but you're now this way. What way? And such were some of you, Paul says, you used to be this, but now you've been washed and you've been sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You've been born again, to use a Baptist term. The old man is dead and behold, the new man lives. You cannot be a Christian and there's no change. And that change will grow, but there can't be no change. And one of the major changes is trustworthiness. We can trust your word. When you say it, I don't need you to swear an oath because I know you're going to keep it. Because I know who your God is. Because I know when my God says he'll do it, he does it. And you're created in his image and you're growing in the image of his son, so I know when you say I'll do it, I'll do it, and you don't need to swear an oath. What do we normally do when we swear oaths? We normally say something like this, I swear it, to kind of give more credence to what we're about to say. A lot of times we do that when we're trying to deceive somebody. I swear it. In fact, that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing. But not only that, Paul says, listen, you're different, but you were sanctified. And I find it so interesting that Jesus said in his prayer to the Father, Father, sanctify them. In what? In what? In truth. The whole existence of the Christian life is one of truth, not falsehood. 
We're not to be liars. We believe the truth. We speak the truth. We live by the truth. Our life bears fruit of truth. We have been sanctified in truth. And the word sanctify means separated from and separated for. Separated from falsehood, sanctified and separated for truth. I told you this passage rocked my world this week. We are to be people known by truthfulness. In the small things and in the big things. Let's talk about some questions that this text poses. First question we have to ask is, does Jesus prohibit all oath-taking? The answer is no, he does not prohibit all oath-taking. Jesus' response here does not prohibit all oath-taking. Let's look at three reasons why. Number one, Jesus does not say don't swear oaths, but rather don't swear the type of casuistic oaths that the Pharisees were swearing. Don't swear deceptive oaths. You say, well, what's, what's an example of a deceptive oath? Do you take this man or this woman to be your lawfully wedded husband or wife? So help you God till you die in better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and in health. And we say yes, because we have the tingles, because she's so pretty, and I'm so handsome, and she's so lucky, and so am I. I was telling my Sunday school this morning, nobody writes love songs about real love. We only write love songs about the tingles. Gary Chapman calls early dating the tingles. You know that special feeling when we see her and she's just so, she's just so pretty. I still have the tingles for you. Do you have the tingles for me? Okay, good. And he, he says, we still have the tingles. And he says, the tingles last about two years and then the next phase of love, in other words, real love sets in. Love, other directed sacrificial service. Next time somebody says, what is love? Say, other directed sacrificial service. What's love? Other directed sacrificial service. Everybody say that. Other directed sacrificial service. That's real love. No, we write about all of the things we'll do and, and the tingles get us to do other directed sacrificial service. So we write songs like, I will cross the ocean for you. And we do. And what was the song, Jeff, you sang this morning? Ain't no valley, ain't no mountain high, ain't no valley low. Telling you there ain't no mountain high. And, we, and nobody writes about that second phase of love. Ain't no diaper dirty enough. <laughs> ain't no garbage smelly enough. I'll always take it out without complaining. We don't write about that love. We only write about the tingles. So we swear those oaths while they're going good, and that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were swearing their oaths while everything was going good, but when it went bad, they do like we do. Oh, 
I'm not going to keep it now. You don't expect me to keep what I said, do you? I said till death do I part. So help me God. And so he will. And so he will judge us. Wow, I told you. This was big. The second way we know that Jesus doesn't prohibit all oath-taking is Jesus himself, when he stood on trial before the high priest, Caiaphas, testified under oath. Matthew 26, 63 to 64, Jesus remained silent, and Caiaphas, the high priest, said to him, I adjure you, that is, command you under oath to tell the truth by the living God. Tell us if you are Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. Under oath, Jesus swore. God hold him accountable to this very thing. That the little baby Jesus that we worship swore under oath and to God, to a greater judge. Because we know what the high priest did to him. He is the Son of God. Furthermore, Paul swore oaths. Romans 1.9 is an example. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. You want to know the thrust of the book of Romans? and the book of every apostle, and the work of every preacher. Paul is saying, I, I, don't, I don't make this, this is not lightly. I swear that I love you, church, he says. Oh, and he did, even to his death, even to many prison cells. He took his oath, and he kept it. So based upon the text... The practice of Jesus and Paul, we can say that Jesus does not prohibit all oath-taking. Well, then what is Jesus teaching? First, that all oaths are made before God. Not the temple. Not your mother's grave. As, listen, this is no disrespect to your mother's grave. It is a confront, confrontation to your fallacious and empty oath. All oaths are made before God. And as much as the Pharisees tried to sneak around by saying, I only swore by the temple, so that when they backed out of this oath later on, they could say, well, it was only by the temple. It wasn't like I swore it before God. Jesus says, no. You have heard it said, do not swear falsely by my name. And all swearing... An oath is by God. Whether you evoke his name or not, God will hold you accountable for your oaths. Small ones, big ones. You say, if he's going to hold me accountable for my small ones, maybe I shouldn't make them. Right. That's exactly his point at the end. Don't swear at all. Just let your yes be yes and your no, no. 
Don't swear. Because when you do, you've got to keep it. So better that you don't keep, that you don't make one and fail to keep it than that you make one and fail to keep it. Don't make one at all. Number two, we will be accountable to God for keeping or breaking our oaths. And number three, that we should seek to build up credibility, not by swearing oaths, but by keeping our word. You want to build credibility? Just be there when you say you're going to be there. Just do what you say you're going to do. And if you can't do it, say no. What does this passage then mean for us? I want to talk about four immediate applications for us. Excuse me, I added a, no, four, it's four. You're lucky. What does this passage mean for us? Number one, we should avoid unnecessary oath-taking. Jesus says indiscriminate swearing is born out of evil. Saying I swear should only be done when the moment demands it, i.e. marriage or in court or sacred ceremonies. For example, serving as a pastor. It should only be done on the most solemn of occasions, but not for every small thing. Because you are bound to that. To God. So it means, this passage means first for us that we should avoid unnecessary oath-taking. I swear. I swear it. I saw him do it. Well, why are you doing that? Isn't your word good enough? Aren't you working to build up a reputation of trustworthiness? Then just say, I saw him do it. That's it. That's good enough. I did not see him do it. It's good enough. You're not required to do it. Then don't do it. I play golf with Johan and David, and we're always working at rules on the golf course. So we'll walk over to the cart path, and our ball will be right there on the cart path, and we're not sure. And sometimes the ball will be on the cart path, and somebody will say, ah, I feel like i got to play it where it lies. And I always say to him something my father used to say to me, don't make the game harder than it is. The game affords you the right to move the ball to the point of nearest relief. Get it off the cart path and move it to where you can hit the ball, the point of nearest relief. Don't make the game harder than it is. We do that when we swear unnecessarily. We're making this harder on ourselves. Don't do it. If you can't keep it, just say, no, I can't keep it. I'm not going to do it. I have had to recently consider this about some of the oaths that I have sworn in my own life. Certain seminary oaths that we have to take that I don't believe are necessarily biblical. That whether I'm going to follow or break are irrelevant. Why should I have to when there are other options out there? Number two, this passage means this for us. Practice straightforward honesty. I remember I had a woman come into my... We, we had to meet with a woman one day. Her son was in my class. She said to me, Well, Mr. Summers, it's pretty simple. 
your son thinks you don't like, my son thinks you don't like him. And I said to her, he's right, I don't. But the teacher's supposed to love every kid. Hey, when you say that, teacher, you're lying. If you do, it's miraculous. Doesn't say I have to like every kid, though. And remember what the question was. My son thinks you don't like him. Now, that's different than love, isn't it? See, love, I've got to be self-sacrificial. I used to ask people, can you love people you don't like? Yes, you can love people you don't like because love is an action and it's a requirement and God doesn't require us to do things we can't do. So, sir, you can love that wife you don't like anymore. And wife, you can love that husband you don't like anymore. And maybe by your sacrificial love, you might begin to like. But like, not required. I am not required to like unlikable people. And neither are you. And she said to me, Mr. Summers. I said, she said, how can you say that? I said, very simply, your son doesn't do likable things if he did likable things I would like him but he doesn't in fact he makes it his goal to be unlikable and taunt me with his unlikability and expect me to like him and I'm sorry I don't have to like him I do have to grade his papers fairly I do have to love him created in the image of Christ but I do not have to want to be around him and frankly madam I don't want to be around your son I don't want you to be my child's teacher. Well, good news. I don't teach anymore. (laughs) But the fact is, isn't that better than lying? Isn't it better than when your teacher told you empty words? I love all my students. And you know she didn't. Listen. We need to create a practice of straightforward honesty. Now, I will say this. Let me pump the brakes for just a moment. Speak the truth with speaking in love. Speak the truth with speaking in love. This is not, this is not a sermon, go and tell the woman who has three ugly children that her children are ugly. That's not what I'm saying. As dad used to say, the truth is right, but it's not always necessary. And I, not the Lord, say, when they ask you, is this baby beautiful? First off, don't ask that question. Just say yes. Because all babies are beautiful. And think in your mind, beauty is on the inside. Number three, we need to cultivate a culture of straightforwardness in our churches. I love the movie Moneyball. The owner of the team or the team general manager has to fire a player. He walks in, says, player, you've been traded. Anything I can help you with? No. The player's mad. That's not the news he wanted to hear, but he gently told him the truth. And they show this other scene where the guy comes in and says, you were just too harsh on him. He says, how would you do it? Well, I'd do it like this. Um, you know, you've been a good man, and, you know, we really, we really love you, and um, you're a great baseball player, and, oh, then why are you trading me? If I'm so great, why are you trading me? 
well, you know, we just feel that it's not working out. And all of these euphemisms, just be straight up. It's not working out. We need that in our churches. Brother, you're sinning. How do you know? See right here? It says you are. And brother, I'll help you. And sister, I'll help you. But we need to be honest to one another. We do no one a favor when we condone sinfulness by our fear to confront it. We need to create a culture of honesty and straightforwardness. That's what Paul did in Corinth. It's what Paul did in Galatia. It's what Jesus and John the Baptist did with the Pharisees. You brood of vipers. Avoid confusion. Avoid lying. And be straightforward in love, of course. And simply tell the truth. You won't regret it in the long run. I remember I had my brother one time. There was an issue of truth-telling. My brother, I called my brother. I said, brother, what do I do? He said, he said Andrew... The truth is always right. There's the answer. It was hard at that moment to tell the truth. He said, the truth is always right. Even if it's not easy, at least you know you did what was right. Last thing. If you have broken your oaths and your vows, confess your sin to God and repent. Confess your sin to God and repent. This is, thankfully, like all other sins, not unforgivable. I was so comforted by that this week. That even though there were times where I haven't always been faithful to the little oaths and to the big oaths, if I confess my sins... He forgives me. But repentance is something different than confession. It means turning away and living a new life. I have ordered oaths as oaths to I have ordained oaths as oaths to God and oaths to men, but Jesus has taught us that all oaths are to God. It doesn't mean that all oaths are equal. In fact, we first and foremost must keep our oaths to God. Where our oaths to men contradict our oaths to God, keep your oaths to God. But what this means for us is that we are to be a people characterized by trustworthiness. Begin to cultivate that trustworthiness by your obedience to the Scriptures. Let's pray. Your word is always hard, Lord. The only way we can bear your word, the only way we can sit down and open up the book and read your word is because we know that you have forgiven us in your son. It's the only way we can read passages that confront us on our sin is by knowing that if we get down and repent, you, Lord, are there to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then ultimately our faith in Jesus is what's going to save us. Not our works, but you haven't created us to be empty vessels, but to fill us with your Holy Spirit that bears fruit. And the fruit you've asked us 
or commanded your people to bear this morning is trustworthiness. Lord, let us be dependable and trustworthy and honest people for your glory because we've been made in your image. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close?